Actually, Matthew shared, our Matthew shared this morning between the choruses that we sang, pretty much the whole context of our message this morning. So what I share today will just basically be a recap of what you've already heard from the Holy Spirit. God is good. And even the reading of Psalm 96 is pertinent, relevant, as it always is, but it was especially so today. Matthew 24 begins with Jesus' Olivet Discourse. It's found in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark chapter 13, Luke chapter 21, here in Matthew chapter 24. It's a greater focus and completion in Matthew's Gospel than the others, but they all add something unique to this particular passage that we again refer to as the Olivet Discourses. In Matthew's Gospel, it's the second longest of the discourses that we find him speaking and recorded by the Apostle. And it's a very important message that, well, frankly, if it weren't for the fact that there were hundreds of different opinions about it, it would be one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture that people would want to go to to find out what exactly it is that we should be expecting in the last days, because that's really what it's all about. But over the years, the church has distorted, misrepresented, misinterpreted much of what is recorded here in Matthew and in Luke and Mark as well regarding these things that we call last days. It's interesting to me that Peter and John, in their letters that they've written and we have recorded in the Word of God, both refer to the last days. Paul refers to the last days. It's something that we should be very familiar with in our reading of the New Testament Scriptures. Peter says that in his day, and remember this was almost 2,000 years ago, Peter said, we are in the last days. That was what Peter said about his own time shortly after Christ was raised from the dead. John agreed with him. In fact, John said, we are in the last hours. Now, we're almost again 2,000 years after those events that were recorded by those wonderful men of God. And so we're in the last seconds. Jesus did inform the church. Time is at hand. Keep looking up. Your redemption draws near. He gave warnings. He gave important information with regard to what the church should expect in the last days. Paul reiterated those very same things. In fact, I would like to read what Paul said to Timothy before we actually turn to what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew. So turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, if you will. And Paul records about the last days something of great importance to us. Read along with me in chapter 4, 1 Timothy, beginning with verse 1, where Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, those are these times, the latter times, Paul didn't say he was in those times. He's looking still forward beyond his day. And he says, In the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits, and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. He goes on to talk about the very fact that there will be many who will profane the Word of God. He says in verse 6, If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed, but reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily, godliness, for bodily exercise, rather, profits a little, but godliness... Godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So again, 
Paul is saying that there is coming a day when there will be much deception. Deceiving spirits teaching doctrines that are not from God. These things are important for us to realize that we are now living in those last days that Paul spoke of. And there is much deception in the world, in the church, and we need to be aware of that which is deceiving, that which is misleading. Misguided half-truths are no truth at all. And so we need to go to God's Word and be careful to compare Scripture to Scripture if we're going to decide what we are reading how to interpret that which we are reading. And so with that in mind, we're going to spend some time in Matthew 24. I hopeful, Hopefully you'll see that we're going to be careful to compare Scripture to Scripture and be able to digest all of what Jesus is saying and understand what the implications of what Jesus has spoken with regard to us in the church today with regard to them in their time, with regard to whatever comes in the near future. Now, we're here today, and we're in the middle of this Advent season. The birth of Christ typically is our focus, the first coming of the Lord. But I find it interesting that here today we're in a portion of Scripture that is looking at the second coming of our Lord. And it's also interesting to me that on our Thursday night's Study. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15 where we've been studying the second coming of our Lord. And it's also interesting to note that in our men's Bible study, which we just had yesterday, we were looking and have been looking at Christ our first fruits, the second coming of the Lord as it is pertaining to the church and the resurrection of those who believe in Christ. So all of these things are kind of melding together in a season of Advent. And it's wonderful to remember and focus on the birth of Christ. And a great passage in Isaiah that we all are familiar with, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and he should be called Wonderful, Counselor, Prince of Peace, Heavenly Father, Mighty God. He is the one that has been promised that would come and did come almost 2,000 years ago. But he left us with information with regard to his next arrival. He has departed. He has been raised from the dead and he has been ascended into heaven. And he is there now seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting for that moment of time when he is told by the Father, go and get your bride. And then after that, I believe, which we, by the way, refer to as the rapture of the church, there will be much trouble on the earth. A time of tribulation, Jesus will say, that was never seen before and never will be seen again. And I submit to you that though there are some who would argue that this all happened by the year 70 A.D., that it has not yet been fulfilled. It can't possibly have been fulfilled. And we'll compare the scriptures that show that to be the case when we get that far. But today, we're going to be looking at what began the process of Jesus having given this discourse that we know as the Olivet Discourse. It goes back, actually, to the last verse in chapter 23, which I'll read for you now. It says there in verse 39, For I say to you, Jesus talking, You shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And before he said that, in verse 37, he said these words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together and as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. The word desolate in the original language is totally destroyed. Now keep in mind, Jesus spoke this passage that we just read to the Pharisees and scribes who had been arguing with him over the things that he had been sharing with them in the temple of the Lord. That great temple that Herod had built. Frankly, that temple had been started by Herod the Great in 20 B.C. And it was still under construction and would be until the year 64 B.C. Some almost 60 plus years in construction. That's how long it took to be 
built completely to Herod's specifications. Now, Herod passed away long before that, but they were continuing to build as Jesus was well aware during his lifetime and beyond. In fact, when he was in the temple at one point, the scribes and Pharisees said, you're not yet 40 years old. And the argument that they were using was that the temple had not yet been finished and Jesus had been saying, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it again. Jesus was well aware of the fact that the temple of Herod was actually an expansion of the second temple built by Ezra, the scribe, around 450, 475 B.C. That temple was small compared to the original temple. Solomon's temple, built around 950 B.C., was a beautiful structure, and it was a place where even the majority of people in the rest of the world recognized as one of the wonders of the world. That temple, Solomon's temple, was destroyed by the Babylonians, 586 B.C. So it took several decades before they were able to build another temple. And that temple was, again, a very small temple compared to the original Solomon's temple. In fact, there were some who were remembering the size of Solomon's temple and looking at this particular second temple, they cried because of the fact that it was so much smaller and insignificant than the original. Well, when Herod came along, he decided that he would please the Jewish people by rebuilding that small temple into something of great grandeur. And he was indeed quite an architect in his day. And so he put out the blueprints, the plans were made, and the project began during his days and continued, as I said, until 64 A.D. The temple, when Jesus was there, was beautiful. Ornate. Gold on the top of its crown, ivory shining brightly in the eastern sun. You could see it for miles. It was a great blessing to the Jewish people that Herod had provided for this to be built. But it was at great cost to the Jewish people also. Well, Jesus was telling the Pharisees and his own disciples had heard, this house will be desolate. Left unto you desolate, destroyed, torn down. You will not know the temple even existed. That's the implication. So in chapter 24, as they are leaving the temple area and heading out toward the Mount of Olives, the disciples are looking back at this glorious temple that Herod had built, and seeing all of the beautiful shining gold and ivory and all of the precious things that were represented in that temple. Verse 1 of chapter 24 of Matthew's Gospel says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Can you imagine what it must have been for the disciples to have heard such words? They knew full well that Solomon's temple had indeed been torn down by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., but this temple, this temple was the holy place this temple was the wonderful temple that God had provided for His people. And after all, they were expecting that Jesus was going to come to reign and that He would be seated on the throne of David. And the temple was very much a part of all that was to be done in the kingdom of God once it is established upon the earth. Jesus is here saying, that ain't going to happen right away. In fact, He 
implies that it isn't going to happen at all because the temple will indeed be destroyed. And they couldn't receive that. They couldn't understand that. They believed that he was coming to reign and now he's telling them, we're wiping the slate clean. Think about it. That must have caused them a great deal of consternation. In fact, we know that it did because they asked certain questions that lead to Jesus' discussion that we have before us. It says in verse 3, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? Remember, Jesus said, Do you not see all these things? So was he referring to, Do you not see the temple? Of course they saw the temple. They saw the temple because they had mentioned the temple to him. It's not that they didn't see the temple. He's saying, did you not see these things that I have mentioned? What things? The destruction of the temple. Do you not see that these things are going to take place? So they asked a question. When will these things be? And then they continued to ask two more significant questions. They added also, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they're asking these three questions. When will these three things be? When will these things be? And then, what will be the sign of your coming? How will we know when you arrive? Interesting question because they thought he was already there and going to establish the kingdom, but he had already been telling them that he's going to be going away, that he's going to die and be raised from the dead. And so perhaps they were reasoning in their mind, well, Jesus is going to go away for a while and he's going to come back and then we'll see the, the kingdom established. They didn't understand exactly what he meant by resurrection, by death, by all of the things that he had said to them. So they were still thinking sometime in the immediate future. And we know that because even after the resurrection of Jesus, the disciples were witness to his having been raised from the dead. They spoke with him and they asked him a question after his resurrection that implies they still were thinking, this is going to happen now. Because they asked Are you going to establish the kingdom now? Is this the time? And Jesus answered, after the resurrection, don't, don't worry about the time. It's not yet. It's not for you to know. But here, they're asking a similar question. When will these things be? When is this destruction that you're talking about going to take place? But they also add, thinking that they're all connected, What would be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Because again, their understanding was that the kingdom age was going to begin and the age of destruction, the age of the Gentile rule in Jerusalem is going to come to an end. They knew from Daniel's prophecies that there was a time of the Gentiles that would be something that they would have to endure as a people of God. It began at the Babylonian captivity, when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, when Babylon defeated the nation of Judah and took them captive, there was no longer a king of the descendants of David seated on the throne. And that was a very troubling period of time, known as the time of the Gentiles. Even in Jesus' day, that still was continuing to be the time of the Gentiles because no king had sat as a descendant of David upon the throne. But they realized he is the Messiah and he is coming to sit on David's throne and the time of the Gentiles will end when he does sit on the throne of David. So they want to know, when is the time? What are the signs of that time? And how will we know the end of the age, when it appears, when it happens? And then Jesus now begins to answer those questions. First of all, he answers with a very, very troubling statement to me. He says in verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. Take heed that no one deceives you. Remember Paul writing, as we read earlier, to Timothy, said, In the last days there will many be many who come deceiving many. And Jesus is here saying, take heed that nobody deceives you. Do you realize how important it is for us to realize that deception is definitely something that we need to be careful to avoid, careful to 
know the truth of God so that we can prevent ourselves from being sucked into lies of the enemy, the deception of the enemy. This is a real issue for the church, and it's something that we all need to be very aware of and be prepared to defend our faith in what Christ has done for us and what the Word of God says. Instead of taking stock with what somebody else might be saying on the Internet, in YouTube videos, or any other source of information that any one of us might be looking at or hearing, pay attention to what you are seeing, pay attention to what you are hearing, pay attention to what you are reading, and compare it to what the Word of God says. And friends, I warn you against being sucked into new teachings, new doctrines, new ideas being presented by people who have no right to do what they are doing. As far as God is concerned, they're liars, they're deceivers, and they're drawing many people away from the truth. And that is something that we need to guard ourselves very, very carefully against. That's why Paul wrote as he did in Second Timothy and First Timothy and other places, talking about the last days. There'll be many deceivers coming. There'll be differences of opinion that will be presented and everybody that hears them are going to be saying either one thing or the other. Wow, that sounded really neat. Or that's got to be evilly put together by an evil source because it does not agree with God's Word. If we have that mindset, if we have that understanding of God's Word, we'll be in good shape. Jesus said, again, be not deceived. It's a warning. Not only to His disciples then, but to us now, and in, indeed more so to us now. It is imperative that you take note of what Jesus said. Take heed. You can't say it in any stronger way than this. Be careful. Be on guard. Take heed that no one deceives you. And then He goes on to explain what He's saying there. He says, For many will come in My name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And there have been many antichrists, if you will, The word Antichrist is used by the Apostle John, not in the book of Revelation, but in his first and second letters. He mentions there are many Antichrists already in his day, and that will continue to be the case. It just means against Christ, or instead of Christ, Antichrist. And it means that what Jesus is saying here is, they will come, and there will be many of them through the years, and there have been, and there will continue to be. And ultimately, there will be one who we know of as the Antichrist, the beast in the book of Revelation, and he will deceive beyond all of the others in his ability to do so. But he says, be aware, they will come. And then he says in verse 6, some other things that lead us to understand that what he's saying here is not so much the near future, although some of it is, But he's projecting far into the future, although that's not spoken directly in this passage. It is known to be so from our perspective. Historically, we can see that what Jesus is now going to be saying is, there's coming a day when you will see certain signs. And this is what he says in verse 6 and following. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Well, there have been wars. There have been rumors of wars all along. If you look back through history, you can see that there has been, at least somewhere in the world, some kind of major military conflict almost for every single year since Christ was on this earth. Wars and rumors of wars. But take note, he says, the end is not yet. This is something that you should expect. This is something that you will see. In fact, it came to Judah, Jerusalem, the people of God, in 66 A.D., just two years after the temple was built. Vespasian, the Caesar in Rome, decided to put down a revolt by the Jews. And he went with great force into the area of Galilee in northern Israel and started coming down toward Jerusalem. He met with a great deal of opposition. And so he reinforced the troops that he had sent so that by the time they came against Jerusalem, 
They surrounded the city, uh, the city of Jerusalem with four legions of their crop troops. These were the best of the best. These were the seals. These were the special ops forces of the Roman arm, army. We know the legions by name. The 5th, the 12th, the 10th, and the 15th legions. They were all top-notch warriors. Surrounded the city of Jerusalem. They besieged the city. And he put his son Titus, Vespasian, in charge of that operation. Until 70 A.D., after many people had been dying from famine within the city, they finally broke down the walls. Josephus, a historian of the first century that we refer to fairly often, records that information that we know about the besieging of the city of Jerusalem, that over a million Jews died. Some 90,000 of them were taken captive. It was a terrible, terrible time. But that's not the worst that the Jews have had to face. Fast forward to the Inquisition. Fast forward to the 20th century, the Holocaust. Other places where Jews were terribly persecuted. They had been beaten over and over and over again. In 70 AD, after the destruction of the temple, which, by the way, was fulfillment of what Jesus had here said. The temple had been standing, and Titus had told his soldiers, do nothing to this temple of the Jews. But somehow, a fire was started inside the building. Apparently, some Roman soldiers decided they didn't want to listen to their general, and they tossed torches into that temple area and all of the wood and fabric that was in the temple caught on fire and it just burned. The heat from that was such an intense heat that it melted all the gold both inside and out. Now those Roman soldiers, those elite soldiers were in it for the spoils. And so they decided to take advantage of the gold that had melted. They needed to destroy that temple, to take it apart, stone by stone, and scrape off the gold that was between, melted between the stones. You realize that some of those stones weighed several hundred tons. They were huge limestone. It was a project. And they took the temple down, stone by stone, and it was leveled to the ground. And Josephus records that for us. It's a reality that we all are very familiar with. In fact, when you go to Jerusalem today, you can't tell where the temple stood. Complete fulfillment of what Jesus had said. Not one stone will be left upon another. That happened in 70 AD. That's part of the wars and rumors of wars that they were going to be expecting as time moved forward. But it didn't end there. Now, there are many in the church who through the ages, realizing that the temple had been, been destroyed and the Jews had been dispersed from the land and there was no more any, any evidence of a Jewish nation in that area that was known as Palestine, given that name by the Romans, they just assume that, well, any of the prophecies that speak of Israel now must be spiritualized and applied to the church. And that teaching is in various forms still around today, unfortunately, but it's not God's word that they're relying on. They're relying on assumptions that they have made because of what they were able to observe. Now, in this time, we have perhaps a better understanding. I hope we do. 
of what was meant by what Jesus had said and others in the Word of God that pertain to the last days because we have a story to tell. And that story includes the rebuilding of another temple. The establishment of the Jewish nation in Judea once again. There were scriptures that spoke of those things. And we tell anyone who is willing to hear that what the scriptures say about the people of God, the nation of Israel, and the city of Jerusalem, and the territory of Judea are literally understood. And when they are literally understood, then you throw away all of the replacement theology that had been developed over the years and you realize that now we have something we can share about what is going on in these last days that line up wonderfully well with what Jesus here has been saying. Continuing on, he says, not only will wars and rumors of wars be seen, and they were, and they will be, and they will continue to be seen, But in verse 7 he says, For nation will rise against nation. Another way of putting that is ethnic groups will rise against ethnic groups. Kingdom against kingdom. Now we've seen two world wars and it's a possibility we might see a third. We don't know for certain, but we do know that these things have been and are taking place because God has made it to be so. He says also in verse 7, And there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. Now again, wars and rumors of wars have been happening all along, and so we can say also, so have famines and pestilences and earthquakes. Nothing new here. Nothing relevant in terms of this has got to be now instead of 2,000 years ago. It's been happening all along. However, when you put together that statement that Jesus just made about those things with the next statement that he makes, then it begins, begins to come into focus. Because he says in verse 8, listen carefully, all these are the beginnings of sorrows. The beginning of sorrows. In the original language, it is a reference to what most of us are familiar with when a baby is about to arrive. Birth pangs. What takes place in the final days of a woman's pregnancy? Nine months along, she's been sitting, talking with her husband on the couch and having a wonderful time, and then all of a sudden she goes, Ooh, oh, oh, something just happened. And the husband stares at her and goes, What? What are you talking about? Well, something just Oh, there it goes again. And then she's beginning now to realize, I think it's time. Well, they don't really worry about it, right or not. For some women, it's faster than for others. But those sudden instances of pain become more intense. Oh, that really hurt. We better start packing. And, of course, when the water breaks, then you're really in trouble. But not only did it happen to be more intense, but the next one came much more quickly than the previous times. In other words, the delivery process, the birth pangs that Jesus is talking about here, refers to a series of things that take place over time that increase with frequency and in intensity. So all of these things that he mentioned... Wars and rumors of wars, famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places, they will, in the last days, increase in intensity and in frequency. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, we can look back through history and we can see, oh, yes, we've had earthquakes throughout the years. We've had famines. We've had all kinds of pestilences. But with greater frequency and with greater intensity, that's the key. And you take a look at just the earthquakes. National Geologic Society has a record of all of the earthquakes, the major earthquakes, over the last several decades, going back into the early 1900s. I believe it was in 1905, they recorded one major earthquake over 6.0 on the Richter scale. A decade later, there were only three major earthquakes. A decade later, 
there were something like ten major earthquakes. Still later, 20, 25 years later, they recorded twice as many. And continuing on, as you get closer to this particular date that we are now living in, it has been exponential in terms of the number and the frequency of earthquakes, major earthquakes. Famines. Oh yeah, that's typical, especially in third world countries. But never before like it has been in this last few decades. And it's reaching more than just third world countries. I found with a great amazement, just last year, locusts in great numbers in Egypt, in Yemen, in other places, Saudi Arabia, overwhelming the crops, causing great problems with their food supplies. Ukraine, the shortage of wheat as a result of the Russian-Ukraine war, causing major problems in food supplies throughout the world. Yeah, that's happening. Greater frequency, greater intensity. Pestilences. HIV used to be a real major concern, and it is still. But what about those other things that have been taking place? COVID is only one of them. There are others. There's Ebola. There are the monkeypox problem that's only limited to certain individuals and certain types of lifestyles, but it's there. You know that most of our antibiotics aren't working anymore against new strains of viruses? Pestilences on the increase with greater frequency, with greater intensity. Could it be that we're in the last days? I submit to you that these are signs that we should be very, very carefully looking at. Again, in verse 8, he said, All these are the beginning of sorrows. And then in verse 9, he says, back again to referring to them and those who follow them, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Jesus is describing those events that will take place throughout the church age. And in the end times, they will again increase, as he has been saying about those other things, but take note of the fact that they are going to be trying to destroy the church. But what did Jesus say about the church? He said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. However, that does not mean that there won't be suffering, that there won't be evil men seeking to destroy and to maim and to kill. And they have. If you haven't read Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's a good read, although it's a difficult one, but it's a good read because it tells us about all the various martyrs throughout the early days of the church's history, up until the time of Justin Fox, or is it John Fox? I think it's John Fox who wrote that. And it has continued since then. Many people were martyred in the first century church, not just the apostles, but many disciples who followed them, burned at the stake, killed in Roman games at the Colosseums. Many people were losing their lives all over the world for their faith in Christ. You know, though, that in the 20th century, more Christians were martyred than in any other time in the history of the church? Now we're in the 21st century. Persecution persists in places like China, North Korea, Iraq, Iran, and many other places around the world. It's still happening. Jesus warned about it. It's going to be continuing to happen. 
So it didn't just apply to them. It applies to all in the church age. Be warned. Be aware. He says again, I want to repeat in verse 10, that many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. There it is again, that word deception. He's warning the church, be not deceived. Because they will come and they will attempt to deceive. Even the very elect Jesus will say, well, that's another story. I'm not going to get into that portion today. But I want all of us to understand that what Jesus is saying about those days in which he and his disciples were living has now been extended into our time by virtue of what he had said with regard to the things that are going to take place. And it will be evidence as a birth pang is also noticed by every woman who has ever given birth. Then many false witnesses, false prophets, they'll rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Lawlessness, the rest of our day, the lawlessness of these, one in particular finding ourselves having to deal on a daily basis with, all that lawlessness... that is taking place in our society is taking place because our society has turned away from their God. I don't see it changing for the better. In fact, if I see clearly what the Word of God declares, and I believe that I am fairly good at being able to discern what is written compared to what is being shared by those who don't believe such things as what is written... I'm convinced that we're heading down on a very, very slope. And judgment will fall on a godless society that turns its back against the one true living God, that says homosexual relationships is the norm, that talks about transgender individuals with high regard, that talks about drag queens teaching little kindergartners all of their lifestyle and find it accepted. Genderless or genderless society. Gender, gender neutral society. You can't ever say anymore he or she. You've got to use it or they. It's all against God. And God will not tolerate such things. The Bible tells us very clearly, God will not strive with man forever. There comes a point, as was demonstrated by his relationship with his own people Israel, there comes a point where God says, enough. That's it. You've crossed the line. And I don't know about you, but I think we're very, very close to crossing that line. But he, verse 13, he who endures to the end shall be saved, shall be delivered. Endures to the end of what? To the end of tribulation that is about to come upon the face of the earth. He who endures through all of these troubles, through all of these things that he's mentioned, he who endures will be delivered. He's not talking about our eternal salvation by faith. That isn't what's being spoken of here. He's talking about delivered from that which is coming upon the earth. The troubles that will be seen by all who are on the earth, when those troubles hit, we can know that if we endure, we will be delivered. and We will be protected. If we are to be here for any length of time when judgment falls, and I think that is still a possibility that we might be here for some of that, then he will protect us. But I want to make a very, very clear distinction. The church will not go through the time of Jacob's trouble. A seven-year period of time that is set apart from all of the rest of history as a time when God judges His people Israel once again in fulfillment of Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy found in chapter 9 of Daniel. And we'll be looking at that the next time we get together talking about this particular passage. Hopefully in the near future, if the Lord wills, 
will do that. Lastly, what's important for us as believers now in this present hour, knowing that the time is short, encapsulated in this verse, 14, he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. This gospel. Good news. It began with the birth of Christ in a little town of Bethlehem. It began with the promise of God fulfilled by that arrival of the Son of God who was to be born, the Son who was to be given. He was there at the appropriate time, in the right place, the place that God, through His prophets, had spoken of, at the right hour of time in history. He came as a babe in the manger. He lived as a human being, but without sin. And that was necessary for Him to accomplish that which He did accomplish, even the death on the cross. And if it wasn't for the fact that He was raised from the dead, your faith and my faith in Christ Jesus would be in vain. But He was. And that's what the Gospel is all about. He lived. He died. He rose again. That's the Gospel. That's what we preach. That's what we declare. That's what we need to present to a lost and dying world filled with sin and evil and confusion over these issues. But let there be no confusion among those of us in the church. Let us know the Word of God to that extent that is necessary for us to be able to make it clear to anyone who would ask of us what we believe. That's what's important. The gospel must be proclaimed, preached in all the world. We're not there yet. And I'm not really sure that the church will be ultimately successful in accomplishing that particular task. Oh, I want the church to be able to do so, but I don't really think that we are going to be. In the tribulation period, near the end of the tribulation, the book of Revelation tells us that there will be those upon the earth who will hear and see angelic beings proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The church isn't going to be there. We will have already left this place. The tribulation isn't about the church. It's about those who have been unwilling to accept the work of Christ on the cross. We'll get into that the next time we get into this book. Because there's so much more here and I'm running out of time, I know, and I don't want to belabor a point, but I want you to understand there is much yet to be fulfilled The prophecies of His first coming were all of them fulfilled exactly as were spoken by the prophets. But there's a ton of prophecies still yet to be fulfilled. And Jesus is here outlining much of what we know are yet future events. In fulfillment of all that what the prophets had declared, Jesus has spoken clearly here to the church in our day, as well as the people in His day, that we and they need to understand. God has spoken. And God will do what God has said He will do. All of these things are going to come to pass that have not yet been fulfilled. So there's much that we are yet to see. And we'll talk about that again in the future studies together in this wonderful gospel record. But take note again of what Jesus has said. Take note again of the warnings that He has declared in this Olivet Discourse. Remember again the words of Jesus when He said, Take heed that you be not deceived. O people of God, it's time for us to awaken to the truth that there are many who are attempting to deceive even the church of God. You can only avoid deception if you know what His Word says. And we're here to share 
We're here to look together at what not only Jesus has said, but what did the prophets say? What did Paul the Apostle say? What did Peter say? What did John say? Compare all of those scriptures together and make sure that you understand that what has been spoken is to be taken literally. And when you take it literally, you will be far from that deception that is coming upon the world. So we're on a journey. And I pray that you stay on this journey with me as we look together through God's Word to know that we are indeed in the last days and to know what we are to do during this time that we have left and how we are to represent Him in the midst of all the trouble that may be coming down. Remember also, Jesus said, In this world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. He's talking to you and to me when He speaks those words of promise. I have overcome. So yes, we may have tribulation, trials and troubles and difficulties and very, very uncertain times ahead. But the source of those tribulations is not God. The source is Satan. He is out to destroy the church. But remember also what Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against His church. So you know that we've got victory. We've got the promise of God's Word on our side. And we need to let people know Because those who are outside the church, those who are outside of the faith in Christ, don't have a clue. And when the tribulations come against them, they will be shaken. Do you want to be an ambassador for God? Let Him fill you with His Spirit. Let Him guide you by His Spirit into all truth. And let His truth set you free. That's the only way for us to be faithful to the end. And I want to be a faithful steward of the mysteries of God. I want to study to show myself approved unto God, rightly dividing His word of truth. I want to be an overcomer, more than a conqueror. I want to live for Him. And when I know that I have done what He has called me to do, then I am certain that He will say to me and to you, if you have done so also, Oh, well done, good and faithful servant. 